Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Jim, we've been in a really awesome series um, at Mac as you've been leading us through kind of like the primeval history of the book of Genesis. It's called Primordial, which has been really cool. And we're only a couple of chapters in at this point, but you have already had to tackle some really, really big topics. I mean, you've talked about the creation account and in that, you know, you've addressed some of the really more common stumbling blocks that people have as they try to reconcile the biblical narrative with what science had has discovered, particularly with regards to the origins of the universe and the evolution of species. You talked about the Big Bang. Uh, you talked about the age of the earth, evolution, naturalism. Uh, I don't know if I, if this has reached your inbox yet, but um, I had someone write me and they wrote, let me quote him correctly. He said, I've been in church for 60 plus years, and that was the first time anyone treated Genesis in a way that would make sense to a grown up. And I think what's really resonating with people is that you have made it legal for someone to be a Christian and believe in science. So that's what I want to talk about today. And But let's start off by kind of addressing the fact that Christianity and science have not always been at odds. Like when you consider, you know, the whole span of human history, that's a relatively new phenomenon. So how and when did that dichotomy come about? Yeah. And let me begin by just saying that there shouldn't be any conflict between science and the Christian faith. And I'm sure we'll tease that out in multiple ways in this conversation. You know, if there is a God, all truth is God's truth, wherever you find it. And everything we find in science uh, would complement his existence and not go to war against it. Uh, in fact, everything we discover in science would simply be discovering things he has done or that he is behind or that he is working through. This is the idea that started modern science, which is why there wasn't any initial conflict whatsoever. Modern science in the West got started because of a Christian worldview. It was rooted in a Christian worldview. It, was, it, it would not have started without a Christian worldview because the whole idea behind science was that people believed God had created a working universe. That, and because God created it, um, it had order. And that meant it had laws and it had principles that could be discovered. It wasn't running on chance or chaos. So there was actually something to explore. Uh, this still lies at the heart of the interplay between science and faith. Uh, to this day, it's the mindset you know, of Christian scientists. So why is there this perceived breakdown between faith and science today? Well, it's not because you can't be a committed Christian and a committed scientist. The, the, the tension is the philosophy that has developed behind much of modern science. Modern science, I'm, I'm going to paint with a very broad brush here, but uh, doesn't want to think about God. It doesn't want to consider God. Uh, literally, when, when secular scientists look at varying theories and various explanations and they're ruling things in or ruling things out, they don't rule out anything except a supernatural dynamic. A spiritual dynamic. That, that's the one thing they, they just automatically posit can't be an answer, can't be a solution, can't be a factor. Um, and so that's the one thing they automatically refuse to consider, which is really bad science. <laughs> you start off with a presupposition 
uh, of that which you will not consider to be true or a possibility. Because if you're really going to go where the science leads, and that's the mantra, you know, go where the science leads, follow the science. You can't begin by ruling out one of the possible destinations simply because it might have a spiritual or supernatural dynamic to it. But many scientists do to such a degree that modern science has become an entirely purposeful, secular worldview. I mean, it's it's that's what drives it. Ian Barber um, once gave a, a fascinating analysis of the historical trail that science has been on from the Renaissance you know, forward in terms of the interplay between science and religion. And I think I can boil his work down uh, fairly succinctly. He writes that when religion first met modern science, which would have been in you know, the 17th century, the, the encounter was a friendly one. Uh, but by the 18th century, many scientists believed in a God who had designed the universe, but they no longer believed in a personal God actively involved in the world and human mm -hmm. life. And by the 19th century, Barber concludes, that scientists were hostile to religion. And the crux of that hostility is rooted in what um, is often referred to as reductive nat naturalism. Uh, let me explain that. I'm giving you kind of a longer answer, but this is, is it needs it. Um, naturalism is the idea that nature is all that is. Reductive naturalism is a value that states that all that can be known within nature is that which can be empirically verified. So a reductive naturalism contends that what is real is that which can be seen, tasted, touched, you know, smelled, and then verified, meaning able to be replicated in a laboratory. Knowledge is reduced to that level of knowing. So it's reductive naturalism. If it cannot be examined in a tangible scientific way, then it's not simply unknowable. They would say it's meaningless. So this naturalism holds that life is accidental. There's nothing beyond ourselves that will ever bring order, reason, or explanation. Uh, we have to restrict what can be known to that which is immediately before us, which is you know, to what is given, to what is factual. This means that which can be empirically or scientifically demonstrated. As the famed astronomer uh, Carl Sagan argued in his final work before his death, he said, the goal is to rid ourselves of a demon-haunted world meaning anything that would challenge the role of science and technology as the ultimate arbiter of truth and reality. For there is no other truth or reality to embrace. So we don't have simply science. We have scientism, the deification of scientific methods and results as a religion. So no longer is it simply a question of whether a test tube can prove God. The test tube is God. Hmm. But the way science has kicked the spiritual out of the picture saying, well, if you, you know, include that, that's not good science or that you can't have good science and, and posit the idea of God, or you can't be intellectual and have this idea of a God running around because inherently belief in God is anti-intellectual is itself poor thinking. Um, there's a place for a Christian mind and a scientific mind to coexist. God's truth and scientific truth can both be embraced because there isn't a scientific mind and uh, then a Christian mind. There's just the mind. Mm. And, and it's been given to us by God to use. There's not biblical truth over here and scientific truth over there. And we've just got to compartmentalize it all and check our brains at the door and never think about science when we're thinking about our spiritual lives. No, that's, 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 not, that's, not, that's not even a biblical view. I mean, all truth is God's truth, which makes it true wherever you find it. And I believe that the more you look at science, you find that there's absolutely no conflict with the Christian faith. And in fact, if anything, there's enormous congruity 
with what scripture teaches or what science discovers almost begs for the existence of God to explain what they found. Uh, faith and science are not in conflict with each other at all. God is the author of both, both science and theology. And it, this has often been said, it's not original with me, but it's, it's as if God has given us two books uh, to draw from, and they're not in contradiction with each other at all. Those two books are the Bible and the created order. And the 19th Psalm kind of captures those two books kind of nicely, you know, first it says the heavens declare the glory of God and, and, and day after day they pour forth knowledge. And then it goes on to say later, the law of the Lord is perfect and the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy and so forth. And so you have these two books, essentially, science reveals truth about what God has done in creation and through creation. And the Bible gives us the truth that God has revealed to us as that creation. But uh, well, I appreciate that. First of all, thank you for kind of walking through that explanation. But unless I'm mistaken, isn't this more of like this compartmentalization that you mentioned between science and faith? Isn't this more of a Western phenomenon than it is a universal one? Like I feel like a lot of the Eastern world has no problem, you know, attributing natural phenomenon to spiritual causes or integrating um, the spiritual and the secular. So why are we in the West more prone to putting faith and science at odds than others are? Well, in short, this little thing called the Enlightenment happened. Hmm. It was a Western, you know, it happened in the West and something of a similar dynamic did not happen in the East. Um, those who lived in the 18th century. So let me describe what happened to us in the West. Those who lived in the 18th century had little doubt that they were living in, in an enlightened age uh, that had emerged from a time of twilight. Uh, referring to the Middle Ages. Between 1650 and 1750 or so, we come to the time of uh, Sir Isaac Newton and, and, and Leibniz and Fontenelle and Spinoza and Dave, Dave Hume and John Locke and of Diderot and Voltaire. And, and uh, historian Owen Chadwick rightly notes that these were the seminal years of modern intellectual history. And that within the span of time, the last remaining vestiges of the Middle Ages ended. But more than an era ended, historian Mark Knoll has written how an increasing uh, number of European intellectuals during this time used new ideas about the natural world and society and the nature of things to attack the established churches and to question traditional views of divine revelation. And even in an unprecedented step to doubt the existence of God, or at least the Christian idea of God as Father. Uh, at best, the divine had become a philosophical category of a first mover in the grand scheme of things, which is why Peter Gay, in his writings, has referred to the Enlightenment as the rise of modern paganism. T to properly understand the Enlightenment, it has to be seen as more than an age. It needs to be seen as a spirit, yeah. a, a real mindset. And while it did produce, if anyone knows their history, knows that it produced the hymns of Isaac Watts and the deeply Christian music of Bach and, and Handel's Messiah, and you had the German movement known as Pietism happening there during this time, John Wesley, the First Great Awakening and such, the preaching of Whitfield. The dominant spirit of the age was anything but Christian. Uh, Henry May once suggested that the message of the Enlightenment, you could put it in, in two propositions. First, the present age is more enlightened than the past. And second, we have to understand nature and man through the use of our natural faculties. So the Enlightenment project, if you ever heard that phrase, the Enlightenment project was the rejection of revelation 
the rejection of tradition or divine illumination as the surest guide for human beings. Instead, autonomous reason yeah. reigned supreme. And let me let me keep chasing this because it's a very very important to understand the Enlightenment. Um, the motto of Immanuel Kant, who is one of the most significant thinkers of the time, was uh, dare to use your own reason. Or in short, he would just say dare to know. And in fact, this was his personal definition of the Enlightenment. There are several words worth noting in what Kant said. First, the word dare, meaning that if you did use reason, it would be daring because it would mean you inevitably come up against traditional authorities, namely the church. So you have to dare to reason. Uh, but that was the point. There would be no authority over the exercise or conclusion of reason. Um, this idea of authority is very, very critical as well for the Enlightenment was a rebellion against one source of authority, that of the church and its appeal to God and his revelation and the enthronement of another kind of authority, which was human reason. That we reason on our own, um, that we are to do that also highlights the independence of human intellect, answerable to none and best able to function independent of anything thought to come from God. And then there's the use of, of, by Kant of the word reason, uh, which for most Enlightenment thinkers, such as uh, uh, like the Scottish philosopher David Hume, for example, um, uh, meant some form of empiricism, which I've already alluded to a little bit. Empiricism elevated sense experience above all others for the gaining of knowledge and wisdom. Sense experience meant what could be seen, tasted, touched, heard, smelled. Uh, and that was introduced through the scientific method of experimentation of Francis Bacon, uh, who lived in the late 1500s and early 1600s. What could not be observed or at least replicated uh, was just met with skepticism. And the fundamental idea is that we could begin with ourselves alone and gain the means by which to judge all things. And not only that we could, but that we should. The challenge this brought to the Christian faith was profound. Uh, Alistair McGrath, uh, charts it out, development, I think, concisely, where he's, he says at first, it was very sympathetically argued that the beliefs of Christianity were rational and thus able to stand up under any amount of intellectual scrutiny. It was then argued that the basic ideas of Christianity being rational could be derived from reason itself, independent of divine revelation. And then the third step, uh, the final step, the idea that reason was able to stand over revelation. Uh, if reason was omnicompetent, and which is what Enlightenment thinkers believed, uh, it was supremely qualified to judge Christian beliefs and judge Christian practices. If reason could not produce a particular tenet of the Christian faith, then that particular tenet was suspect. Only what human reason could demonstrate would became enshrined. Or as Henry May noted, the, the issue was not about the Enlightenment's relationship to religion. It was about the Enlightenment as a religion. Uh, the speed by which Enlightenment thinking took hold really was was breathtaking. And sadly, Christians didn't help. Again, let me talk to the, the how the Western context, uh, you know, uh, how that played into this. Um, Enlightenment philosophy was got reinforced on a popular level by a series of discoveries and breakthroughs that seemed to put reason in charge of public factual truth. Uh, and banish any idea of biblical revolution, uh, revelation to the world of superstition and even outright falsehood. The most famous that almost anyone would be at least somewhat familiar with is the famed discovery of Copernicus in 1543, right in the heart of this period of time we're talking about. Uh, it was verified almost a century later by Galileo. 
and that was that the Earth was not the center of the universe. Uh, in determining that we live in a heliocentric, you know, sun-centered universe, as opposed to an Earth-centered one, Galileo brought into question, uh, in the minds of the popular people, the trustworthiness of faith itself, because at the time, the official teaching of the church, uh, the Catholic church, considered anything other than an earth-centered universe heresy. Hmm. Uh, the church's position was obviously based on wooden, literal interpretations of narrative texts describing the sun moving and the earth still, you know, phenomenological language, and then was kind of made that phenomenological language as if it was making some kind of precise scientific statement. There, the, the Bible never teaches, you know, an earth-centered universe. Um, it was just pre-scientific phenomenological language, which we still use to this day. You know, we talk about sunrise and sunset. But once Copernicus's theory was proven correct, religious pronouncements on all matters of public discourse became suspect. Uh, Colin Brown once wrote, Copernicus, uh, his theory not only inaugurated a change in the way people thought about the relationship of the earth to the sun, it also involved a change in the way people thought about the relationship of science to philosophy and theology. And again, all of this was happening in the West. The East was immune. Hmm. Well, and you see this like combative element between reason and revelation. I mean, I, I feel it even now. I mean, there's certainly, not, in, not everywhere, but there's certainly a caricature present in our culture of a Christian who is ignorant or if not just unintelligent when it comes to their understanding of science. So it's almost like to believe in revelation means that you're not reasonable or rational and therefore you're not qualified to speak in, or yeah, that you don't have any understanding of what's happening in the scientific world. So can you talk a little bit more like kind of like modern day, how that impression has been either formed or solidified? Well, as you've heard me say before, you could argue that it began in the summer of 1925 mm. uh, in the small mountain town of Dayton, Tennessee. Uh, what was at hand was a legal confrontation uh, that made headlines around the world. Uh, on one side, you had William Jennings Bryan, and the other was Clarence Darrow. Their confrontation uh, was not over a crime or a misdemeanor. It wasn't, wasn't a legal suit. There had never been a trial like this. It was on the origin of life. And it's known now in history as the Scopes trial. And the reason it's known as the Scopes trial, because there was a young biology teacher by the name of John Scopes, who was charged with violating a law on the Tennessee books, which said you couldn't teach evolution in the schools. And as a result, the trial posed defenders of evolutionary theory against those who wanted public schools to teach what was considered, in their minds, the biblical view of the origin of the world's inhabitants. William Jennings Bryan uh, represented the state of Tennessee. And as a result, those who believed in this, their, their understanding of the biblical view. And Clarence Darrow represented those who embraced evolutionary theory, and thus he was defending John Scopes. It really was the clash of two worlds. You set it up very nicely. I mean, Brian was a good old boy, religious Southerner. Uh, Darrow, in favor of evolution, was the outspoken religious skeptic uh, from the North, polished, intellectual, uh, supplied to Scopes by the ACLU. Uh, most don't know that the result of the trial found the teacher guilty. Um, but not before Darrow, who is the evolutionist, somehow persuaded Brian to take the stand and defend the Bible. And uh, and he made a fool of him. He just made a fool of him. Uh, he was cross-examined by Darrow. Darrow is arguably the greatest trial lawyer of his day. And, 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 and he 
he grilled him on the precise accuracy of the Bible. And in the course of that examination, um, Daryl forced Brian to admit he couldn't answer even the most basic questions about the Bible that were put forward. And not because there weren't answers. Yeah. <laughs> there were. It's just that Brian wasn't exactly um, the best person to answer him. And, and, and he didn't have answers. And he wasn't a biblical scholar at all. So the verdict of history is really intriguing. Brian won the battle, but he lost the cultural war. Uh, while he technically won the case, the conflict stamped the entire debate with this uh, unmistakable image. Evolution versus creation came to be seen as the city versus the country. Places like New York and, and Chicago against backwoods Dayton, Tennessee, and science versus ignorance, and the modern world of the, of the 20th century against the American religious fundamentalism of the 19th century. And, and that image, in one form or another, really, quite frankly, has remained in place even to this day. Evolution has become the accepted scientific theory of how human beings and all of life developed and came into being. And the biblical idea of a God involved in anything with creation is seen as a view that is anti-scientific and out of touch with the real world. Here's my question. Like I'm thinking, how well do you think now the average Christian would do in a very similar trial if they had to take the stand and give a defense for the Bible, or they had to speak intelligently about the origin of the universe or evolution. Like, don't you think it could? Are are we doing much better in that area than Bryant did in the Scopes trial? No, um, and uh, and I think that if we were more versed in science, if the average Christian um, could get more comfortable with science and not just see it as the enemy and also just get some basic understanding of the congruency of, of science and scripture, I, I think there would be less fear of science. Mm. And there'd be more of an understanding that science actually bolsters belief in God. Like, for example, you mentioned earlier the Big Bang. Yeah. Uh, the Big Bang is, for me, that that's, that's low-hanging fruit. Mm. <laughs> I mean, the, the idea of the Big Bang was first put forward by uh, Edwin Hubble, the man we named the Hubble Telescope after. And his theory was that at one time, all matter was packed into a dense mass at temperatures of many trillions of degrees. And then about 13.8 billion years ago, there was a huge explosion or, or it began to expand rapidly. And from that explosion, all of matter that today forms our planets and stars was born and the universe was created. Hubble's theory was confirmed. It really is not a theory anymore. It was then called the discovery of the century when it got confirmed, because what happened was on April 24th, Back in 1992, the Cosmic Background Explorer satellite, which was uh, called COBE for short, um, gave stunning confirmation of the hot Big Bang creation event. Uh, and in many ways, that really was the birth of modern cosmology. So where does that leave us? You know, is everything about God and the origins of the universe, is that all just settled and God's just pushed out completely? And we don't, you know, it just proves that there wasn't a God. It's the exact opposite. And here's why. We know that something cannot come from nothing. That's science 101. Something cannot come from nothing. We also know that the universe isn't eternal. It had a beginning. There was a hot Big Bang creation event. Well, that's a bit of a problem because according to the science of the Big Bang, something did come from nothing. And that raises all kinds of questions, God kinds of questions, because you can't just say that everything began with the Big Bang and act as if you somehow explained the origins of the universe. That still doesn't explain where the matter that got banged came from, the matter that began to expand came from. 
And, you know, I've kind of joke, you want to put it in lay terms, where did the stuff that got banged come from and who banged mm -hmm. it? Something or someone somehow, some way brought that first matter miraculously into existence in such a way that it expanded in the universe. And it had to be something outside of space and time because space and time didn't exist prior to the Big Bang, which science says can't have happened by the current laws of physics, which means we're talking about something outside of the laws of physics, beyond the laws of physics, over and above the laws of physics, something outside of all natural phenomena. And there's a category for that. It's called supernatural, <laughs> which puts us in God territory. But now let, let's, let's take this further. Not only does a failure to understand science make us unnecessarily nervous about it or intimidated about it or fearful about it, when it's mentioned, all truth is God's truth, so there should be no fear whatsoever. But we can create unnecessary tension with science by failing to understand our own scriptures. I think many Christians, though, while well-intentioned, feel they have to hold to anti-scientific views that have been pretty clearly demonstrated because of the Bible. Uh, now, I know I'm, I'm going to go there. <laughs> And I know I'm going to run the risk of offending some people here, but I, th I think our listeners are open to challenging ideas, even when they disagree. And, and you know, I always say to people, you know, we can agree to disagree agreeably. Uh, so, but let me see if I can bring a little challenge here, uh, knowing that there may be some who disagree with this. Let's think about, and you mentioned this earlier, let's think about the, the meaning of the word day mm -hmm. in Genesis. Because how you define that is wildly significant and makes a huge difference. For example, let's say that you read the opening section of Genesis. You, you don't read it as prose narrative. You don't read it as epic poetry. Uh, but you read it as an intentionally precise scientific treatise attempting to say precise scientific statements which would mean that when you read, read the word day in Genesis, you only have one way to interpret it. You only have one way. Uh, it is a 24-hour solar day that we are talking about here. Yeah. Then from that, you use histories and genealogies that are in the Bible and calculate that the age of the earth has to be no more than around 6,000 years old, at least if you're going to be biblical, <laughs> which would mean that all of the scientific evidence of the Big Bang happening about 13.8 billion years ago uh, and the earth being four and a half billion years old, you have to say, well, that's just all wrong, completely wrong. You have to say that the light we see coming from stars, billions of light years away, the, geolo the geological stratigraphy you see in places like the Grand Canyon, the ranging from 200 million to 2 billion years ago, and the age of the fossils of the dinosaurs, and, and it has to all be ignored or it has to be dismissed by spending incredible amounts of energy on scientifically dubious theories that try to explain it all away in light of a supposed young earth. But is that the only way to understand the meaning of day in Genesis? Is it even the best way? And I would argue no. Hmm. The mention of days is just an ancient poetic way of talking about the fact that this happened in space and time. And people who try to make a scientific statement about seven literal 24-hour solar days making the age of the universe at around 6,000 years aren't, I believe, reading the text carefully. Or I would even say they're not reading it literally mm -hmm. enough. I mean, they're not reading it in the genre it was written, hermeneutics 101. What's the genre here? 
and uh, and also uh, and also letting authorial intent come through. How could God have wanted to inspire the writer of Genesis to convey scientific precision about literal 24-hour solar days when, according to the text, the sun and the moon were not even created until the fourth day? You couldn't have even had a 24-hour solar day until the fourth day. There was nothing in existence to be solar about. I think God could have inspired the writer to be a little more careful on that one if he meant it to be a scientific statement. Sure. But the genre of Genesis 1 and 2 and even in 3 is epic, poetic, figurative language, certainly using pre-scientific phenomenological language. Um, uh, Moses would have written this about, what, 1400 B.C.? Mm-hmm. The word also, if you're going to be good with your interpretations, you need to dig into the Hebrew, the original language. And the word used in the original Hebrew for day was the Hebrew word yom. Uh, We would transliterate it Y-O-M. While it can mean a 24-hour solar day, it can also mean a segment of time, anywhere from weeks to a year, several years to an age or even an era. Uh, We use the word day in a similar way now. We talk about days gone by or my grandfather's day or... um, the use of the word day or yom in Genesis could have stood for any period of time, uh, even indefinite periods. It was a literary device, yeah. not a scientific declaration. So the actual days referenced poetically in Genesis um, reflect indefinite periods of time. You know, I mean, God didn't give us any details on that. You know, it's kind of like on the first day and the second day, the sun went up, the sun went down. And, and you know, this kind of chronologically, as Moses was saying, the headline, of course, was that God did it. And it was good. He just doesn't tell us how. But it obviously, it looks like it was just different geologic eras that could have been millions of years in length, allowing for everything from the dinosaurs to the Ice Age to take place. And I always like to point out to people who get uncomfortable with this, um, the, the nature of, of the discomfort is, is not that the Bible clearly teaches 24-hour solar days, because I, I don't believe it does. I, I think what it is, is, is that we've got this view of the miraculous, that if it doesn't happen instantaneously, it wasn't a miracle. It, it wasn't a, a God thing. Um, and it reminds me of an old story about an Eastern king who asked one of his counselors to give a sign of the wonderful, miraculous works of God. And the counselor told the king to plant four acorns. And so he did. And when the king looked up after planting them, there were suddenly four full-grown trees. And believing that only a moment had gone by, he thought a miracle had occurred. But then the counselor told him, no, in truth, the minute you planted the acorns, you fell asleep. You've been asleep for 80 years. And when the king looked down and saw that he had grown old and that his clothes were now in rags, he said, then there, there is no miracle here. And the counselor said, oh, no, 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 there is, there is. It's God's work, whether he did it in 80 seconds or 80 years. And that's true. Immediacy isn't the key to something being miraculous. Miraculous is the key to something being miraculous. Time has very little significance hmm. here. And so I think this is a, a way of looking at things that, uh, you know, if you're not fair to the text, you can just put yourself in unnecessary tension with science. That really, that tension doesn't exist. Well, in the name of fairness, like we have put Christians in the hot seat quite a bit the last couple of questions. But I, I think it's only fair to say, okay, so maybe Christians wouldn't do great, you know, the average Christian, if they were put in trial uh, on trial. But I wonder if the average non-Christian would as well. You know, like, I think that just as 
kind of the a, a Christian who's not very well informed in scientific matters might say like, well, it's just, you know, the Bible says so and that's, you know, what I believe or, you know, there's smart people who believe this. It definitely seems that the average non-Christian doesn't really have a great explanation or understanding of like the way that you even just described the Big Bang and how that all happened. Like, I just wonder if someone else, not with your knowledge, could have that same defense, or if it really just comes down to a matter of faith on both sides of the of the trial, you know, whether you're putting your faith in God or whether you're just putting your faith in scientists. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, I think that's well put. I think you're right. I, I think it, it, faith is involved in both. I mean, there is a faith component with, with, with Christian faith, yeah. and there's a faith component in science as well. Um, and uh, in fact, there's greater leaps of faith with science to rule God out than there is for a Christian to have faith to rule God in. Uh, I once, there was a, there was a book that, uh, uh, the title, um, you know, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah, know, sure. and yeah. it's, and that's a, and I think that's a point well taken. And particularly when they, they insist on bracketing off the possibility of God, and then they have to come up with all kinds of ways of trying to explain something that so clearly only has a supernatural explanation mm-hmm. or a God-inserted moment there. And what they do, the gymnastics they go through, can almost be comical. Uh, and so they're forced to take huge leaps of faith. Um, for example, whether you think that God used evolution or not in the creative process, um, you know, the only way to even begin to embrace naturalistic evolution um, is to have enormous mutation leaps and and age, things to deal with the age gaps and stuff. And it takes a, quite a bit, quite a bit of faith. Or you fall back on poor thinking. I, one of the things, and, I, and I, this is going to sound snarky, and I don't mean it to, but it's not original with me. Scientists tend to make very poor philosophers and even worse theologians. And yet we've given them the, the place to speak into philosophy and theology in our day. Let me give you a great example of what I mean by that. Um, for example, um, the, one of the big scientific questions that cannot be answered by science is how did life come from non-life? There is no scientific answer. Um, there's a biblical theological answer. There's a theistic answer, but there's no scientific answer for, you know, life coming from absolute non-life. So, uh, how you have so when scientists are asked to explain that one of the leading theories for the solution is almost comical it's it's panspermia and it's that life arrived here on the back of a meteorite from another planet in other words it was seeded here and that's how you get past the need for initial you know uh, complexity and the start of life from non-life and everything else but you know i mean almost anybody would say, wait a minute, that solves nothing. How did life start there? I mean, you you haven't answered any questions, but you go merrily along as if you have. And that's what I mean by being very poor philosophers and even worse theologians, because if that's your solution, that's no solution at all. Well, it also seems too that there is a faith in what has yet to be discovered, that you know, it's just a matter of time before science completely shuts down God. We just haven't discovered it all yet, and I I think some Christians are scared about this too. And so I'm I'm so curious. Do you think that there is a scientific finding that could ever really present a problem to the Christian faith? Well, let me, let me take that in two parts. Okay. Go to your first part, where you said. Um, uh, 
you know, we just haven't found the answers. Yeah. You know, science hasn't just found the answers yet. And someone could say, well, we just don't know how life came from non-life, but um, through the laws of physics, but we'll, we'll find out eventually, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to go running to God for that answer. Yeah. And I remember reading Alan Guth, who was um, uh, a leading physicist at MIT. And, w- and one of the things that he said in reply to that thinking, which I thought was really interesting, he says, well, even if we were to find a solution from the laws of physics, within the laws of physics, uh, uh, or outside of the laws of physics for life coming from non-life, if we were to somehow crack that code, we still would have to figure out who created the laws of physics. Right. <laughs> so you, you're not going to get away from this. But every discovery that I find that is made just solidifies my faith and just begs God to be considered. Uh, and the, the example I gave of the Big Bang is just is just one. So no, I really can't imagine a discovery uh, because all truth is God's truth. Um, it's interesting that some Christians, the one I hear Christians afraid of, mm-hmm. and I don't know why, is like, oh my gosh, what if we find life on another planet? Yeah. Which I've never found to be a concern. They would, you know, they, you know, they'd say, well, what would that change? That would change nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, uh, and so, uh, and I've blogged on life on other planets whenever, you know, something's found like, oh, there was a planet that's earth-like that we just discovered. And people act like all of a sudden that undermines everything related to faith or Christianity. And I'm just scratching my head. Like why, yeah. <laughs> you know, but we'll, we'll post that in the show notes so that people can uh, chase that rabbit if they want. But no, I, I I don't I don't fear anything there. If we read the Bible fairly, as the author intended, and to the degree of precision it intended, and we read science fairly, we really do read these two books appropriately. There's just there's just no tension. Hmm. All right. Well, why don't we wrap up today's conversation with one more question? And it's basically I'm just asking if you might give a piece of advice to people who do want to be open to scientific explanations for how God created the world and sustains it. Like, what would you say to them? How could they do a better job on trial? Like, what would you, what advice would you give them to hold both of these things in their hand? Yeah. Um, At the risk of being self-serving, I I would strongly encourage them to get hold of my book, Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians. And I deal with almost every major scientific issue that non-Christians have as they're exploring the Christian faith. And uh, that will introduce anyone to the to major issues and maybe how to think about them or talk about them with a non-Christian friend. But then the footnotes that are given there will just be, you know, let you have a field day in pursuing this further. So, um, uh, and also introduce you to Christian scientists, of which there are some fantastic ones who are doing writing and thinking, Francis Collins and and people like that. So, um, yeah, maybe start there. Well, and just to clarify, too, I know the title says Christianity for people who aren't Christians, but you'd recommend that for both Christians and non-Christians, like for, for yeah. Christians to read, too. Yeah, absolutely. So that we can yeah, yeah, yeah. we can understand the, the, the rationale there. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been a great conversation. Kind of my hope with today was that we could kind of present this from maybe like a a higher view so that later on when we want to tackle kind of more precise, like tension points between science and faith, we have this to kind of provide our foundation for and we can um, constantly 
refer back to this one. So I think I, I think this was a great way to provide that foundation. So thank you, Jim. Um, before we log off, though, let me remind our our listeners again that next week is not a typical podcast because next week is our first ever live church and culture podcast. So on Thursday of next week, the twenty third um, at noon, we invite you to be a part of the conversation, and we're going to open up the topic to all things church and culture. Um, and so you can join. We probably should say noon Eastern time. Oh, thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Um, So you'll be able to pop in and you'll be able to chat your questions and um, I'll sort through them and have Jim answer those. Um, So if you want to find out. Jim, attempt to answer (laughs) (laughs) them. You're not coming for my answers. Um, yeah, and, and I'm yeah. Jim will answer them the best he can. Um, but if you want to find out more about how to do that, certainly check out the show notes. If you regularly get emails about the blog, that'll be in there. But then otherwise, you can just head over to the website um, where of uh, our church, which is mecklenburg.org. Find the link that says online campus, and you can join that way as well. So if you miss it, that's totally fine. Um, we will release it the following day, just like we do every week. So you'll be able to eavesdrop on that conversation. But if you can make it, that would just be a really fun thing for you to be a part of. Um, and that way you can ask your questions directly. That would be awesome. So Jim, I will let you prepare for that. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, thank you again for listening this week. Thank you, Jim. And I'm looking forward to next week.